I'm going to take your Bible and go ahead and open to the book of Acts, chapter 18. Glad to be back with you. I'm sorry I missed practically everything this week. Uh, had the flu. I'm over it. I still sound like death just ever so barely warmed over, but uh, I feel okay. All right, we're moving along in our study in Acts, <clears throat> and remember that Acts is a historical narrative that covers the first 30 or so years of the history of the church after the death and resurrection of Christ. So it begins in chapter 1 with the ascension of Christ back into heaven to the right hand of the Father, and a band, leaving a band of about 120 believers in the world. By the time the book ends 28 chapters later, uh, there are multiplying churches throughout the Roman Empire, from Jerusalem and Judea and all Samaria and to the ends of the earth, just as Jesus said it would. But we're in chapter 18 today. We're not going to look at the whole chapter, but mainly the first two-thirds, recounting Paul's time in the city of, of Corinth. We'll read it in just a minute. Um, I was a history major when I was at Auburn, and so this kind of stuff interests me. I'm going to assume it interests you too. Uh, I want to, I want to, I want to, I just, Corinth is fascinating to me, and sometimes I, I want to give you a little background of, of not just, I don't want, when we're going to talk about Paul going into Corinth, I want to think for just a minute about the Corinth that Paul walked into, and what was Corinth like? How did Corinth become the city it, it became? We know a lot about, um, about Corinth from, from historical sources outside of the Bible, um, and it's important to think through some of the context of this, uh, e- even, to, even to, to, to remind ourselves of how relevant this is to our lives still today. Because in some sense, um, the first century world wouldn't even recognize the world we live in. But in other, way, in other sense, they absolutely would. Because a lot of things have changed, obviously, since the first century, the last 2,000 years, but some things haven't at all. And at root, they weren't all, all that different than we are. Um, but Corinth was in, in Greece, is in Greece, the country of Greece, and it was a Greek city long before the Romans took over. And Corinth was one of the most prosperous, wealthy, uh, prominent cities in Greece. Why? Because where it was located. So uh, if, you were in, if you were in Greece, if you wanted to go from the north to the south, you would have to pass through Corinth because uh, to get there, and here's a map of it. I have a map and everything. So that's, a, that's, that's an isthmus that runs across from the north to the south, and, and where that, obviously, that big red pin is, is where Corinth is. And you would have to, if you wanted to go from the northern part to the southern, you had to pass across that isthmus and go right through Corinth. And so uh, it had a lot of trade going through there uh, within the country of Greece. And uh, the other thing about the fact that Corinth was located on that isthmus is that there were ports on both sides of the city, seaports on both sides of the city. And um, there's now a a canal that runs across that that isthmus that that ships can go straight through. But then, that was not there. Just a little interesting tidbit. How uh, How would ships... If they, if they sailed in from the south how would, and they wanted to go through the north, how would they go from one to the other 
without having to sail all the way around the landmass. Well, in the first century, they had what was almost like a railroad made out of logs, rolling logs, and the ships would come up, and they could literally roll the ship all the way across that landmass on rolling logs, and it would port back into the water on the north side. But because of those seaports, um, there was not just trade going through Corinth within Greece, but international trade because of the seaports. Vast amounts of wealth coming in through the seaports from all over the world. Vast amount of cultural influences coming in through all over the world. Um, And so for those reasons, for trade reasons, it was a very prosperous city, even in ancient times. Another reason it was was, uh, a very uh, eclectic place to be, uh, a cosmopolitan place to be, was not just because of the trade routes, but because of something called the Isthmian Games. The Isthmian Games. Uh, They were held every two years, the year before and the year after the original Olympic Games. And um, people flooded to Corinth for these these events. It was a a place to be. It was a major metropolitan area. Now, to, to get to how Corinth came to be what it was in Paul's day, in 146 B.C., tragedy hit. Uh, a Roman empire, a Roman, excuse me, a Roman emperor came through the city with his army, destroyed the city, killed or enslaved all the inhabitants of the city and carried them off. And the city of Corinth, even in the location it was, lay desolate for almost a hundred, for about a hundred years. Nobody lived there. Until 44 BC, when Julius Caesar decided to rebuild it. And he rebuilt it and uh, what did he model it after? He modeled it after Rome itself. And he built a fabulous city there, but he needed people to live in it. So who, who did he get to live in Corinth? Well, he, sent, he, was, he got all the, 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 the poor in Rome, mostly, many of them at least, freed slaves, and he sent them to live in Corinth. Well, and it was people from all over the world, really. It was people from Egypt and Syria and Jews and... Because the city had never moved and the seaports were still there, it was essentially guaranteed to be rich again. And, and it was. And in short order, it became, it became, by the standards of the time, an opulent city. Uh, just, you don't, some of these sound simplistic, but on the other hand, or, or seem like they would be given in today's world, but in the, on the other hand, when you, when you hear the list of things that were there, it sounds like a city today. Uh, they... Corinth had paved roads. It had a never-ending clean water supply. Um, there, had, there were shopping areas and Senate buildings. It was, the, it was the, the capital city of that province. Senate buildings, fountains and monuments and schools, a theater, a stadium, a library, athletic fields, parks. The, the point is to just give you a, a, a picture of Corinth that Paul walked into. It was an opulent city. It was a wealthy city when he walked in there in the, in the early 50s A.D. on that second missionary journey. That's the city in which that church would be born. Maybe why the letters that Paul would later write to them are the way they are, addressing a myriad of different moral issues and temptations because there was a lot of pride in the Corinthians, a lot of materialism, especially because of the the, the wealthy people there were former 
and now freed slaves, and they probably felt like self-made men. Because of the, the vastly different influences of cultures in the Corinth, and because of the seaports and the enormous amounts of wealth, in a short amount of time there was also rampant immorality. And uh, this is the air that the church there would have breathed every day, an air, air of plenty, an air of luxury, prosperity, security, but also a rampantly immoral culture. So trying to be a church in that kind of culture um, is like trying to be the church in ours. It's, it's, in many ways, Corinth is just like us. But today we're going to think about how that church had its beginning. And it's recorded for us in, in Acts chapter 18. So if you found that chapter in your Bible, let's read together. Begin in verse 1 and read through verse 23. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. We actually have historical record of that. That was in AD 49. Even know why he expelled them. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they, had, when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. For now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul believed and were baptized and the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision do not be afraid but go on speaking and do not be silent for I'm with you and no one will attack you to harm you for I have many in this city who are my people and he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them but when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal saying this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or a vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila. As Sincrea, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus... And he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they had asked him to stay up for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. 
and he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Let's pray. Father, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, and necessary word. And we just ask that you would open our eyes to see good truth here. And um, give us hearts to embrace the truth that we see and love it. And give us wills to obey whatever you call us to do. Give me the help that I need to teach. And please give us all ears to hear. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I read and reread and reread this passage again um, this week. And, and a theme kept uh, becoming apparent that I think Luke, the author of this, intends for us to see and notice throughout and see its impact throughout. And that theme is the sovereign hand of God. The sovereign hand of God. Where do we see that? Well, we see it in two, in two prominent places. Most obviously in the vision that he receives uh, while he's there in Corinth. Uh, the vision that we see in verses 9 through 11 where, where uh, God comes to him in a vision and he says, go on speaking, nobody's going to attack you. God is obviously sovereign in this to be able to promise such a thing. But then also near the end of the chapter where uh, Paul tells the Ephesians his plans, if God wills, he says in verse 21. I will return to you if God wills. The reality of God's uh, sovereign hand superintending this, this missionary journey of Paul is, is palpable in the chapter. And you can see how it affected Paul in the way he went about his mission. So I want us to think about missions under the mighty hand of God. Missions under the mighty hand of God. How a deep conviction of God's sovereignty should impact how we view the mission that Christ has given us. Um, and, and to that point, I want to suggest that we can see at least three ways that it impacted Paul, um, in, in, at least in Corinth. Uh, first, I, I, I submit that the, the knowledge of God's very present sovereignty over his life gave Paul boldness, gave him boldness, which we'll see uh, in a clear and, to me, a hilarious way in verses 1 through 11. Second, carrying out his mission under the mighty hand of God, we see that, that very often God gave him favor because of this. We'll see this as he stands before the Roman proconsul Gallio, verses 12 to 17. And third, his trust in God's sovereign hand gave him direction in what should he do next. The Lord would direct his steps and make it clear. So that's where we're going. Let's start by thinking how a deep awareness of God's sovereignty gave him boldness. The chapter begins with Paul meeting two people who would become very dear to him, Aquila and Priscilla. They had been kicked out of Rome in AD 49 by the Roman Emperor Claudius. Um, they were actually, he wrote, he, it was actually written that he kicked them out having something to do with, with the one called Christ. Um, and I, I don't know, it's cryptic as to what that means. doesn't mean that Jesus went there, but probably followers of Jesus were making some noise in Rome, and he didn't like it, so he kicked out the Christians, which leads you to believe that Paul, when Paul met um, 
Aquila and Priscilla, they were already believers. Because it doesn't say anything else later about um, them coming to faith. And by the end of the chapter, which we didn't read, they're going to be teaching Apollos a more excellent way. So uh, they're, they're, they're likely already believers. But having met them and having set up shop with them as tent makers to earn a living while he's in Corinth, Paul now goes about his, his normal pattern of things, and he goes to the synagogue. And it says in verse 4 that he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath day. So at the very least, he's persistent. But based on his past experiences, don't, don't look at this in a vacuum. Paul goes, goes to a new town, and he goes to the, to the synagogue um, sometimes past his prologue, and it has to demonstrate a great deal of courage and boldness in him to continue to do this. Because, um, and it says in verse 5, by the way, that while he was there, he was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Now, the last place he had been, or one of the last places he had been, was Berea, and they, when, they, when they, he did this there, they took it pretty well. But surely he hadn't forgotten how the Thessalonians responded when he, when he did the same thing in the synagogue in Thessalonica, or how in Lystra they had literally stoned him to death, or they thought they did, um, before he rose up and went back into the city. So Paul's testifying to Christ in the synagogues from town to town had been mostly hazardous to his health, and yet he keeps going. He keeps, he keeps preaching, and that requires a tremendous amount of boldness and courage. Where did that come from in Paul? Was he just a naturally courageous person? Something that Paul's going to say in a couple of chapters to the Ephesians, I think, gives us a clue. You can flip over to this or just look on the screen in Acts chapter 20, verses 22 and 23. He's talking to the Ephesian elders, and he tells them, and now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Afflictions and imprisonment await him in every city, but who assured him? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in every city testifies to me of these things. So even if it is those things, even if it is imprisonment and afflictions, Paul knew that nothing was going to happen to him in any city he came to that, that was other than what God allowed and that, uh, that was other than what God superintended for his life and that the Holy Spirit would be present with him and enable him to endure. He knew that God was sovereign over his life. And so he was not only bold to, to, to continue going to the synagogue, but when there, was a, uh, when there was a chance that they were going to harm him, look what, uh, look what else he does. When it says in verse 6, they began to oppose and revile him. What happened in other cities when they opposed and reviled him? They dragged him out of the city. They beat him. They stoned him in Lystra. When they start opposing him and reviling him, I'm sure it might make the, the hair on the back of his neck stand up in fear. But what does he do? He calls a curse down on them. Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. And he tells them he's going to turn now to the Gentiles. And where does he go? He walks next door. He goes to the house next door. 
to the house of Titius Justus, who was like uh, Cornelius in chapter 10 or Lydia in chapter 16. He's called a worshiper of God. He was probably sympathetic to the, uh, the Jewish faith and Jewish worship, but had not converted to Judaism. He was a worshiper of God. But apparently he was converted under the preaching of Paul. He lived next door to the synagogue, so he opened up his home to Paul when he turned his attention to the Gentiles. But his home was next door to the synagogue. Um, yeah, I mean, takes a little boldness. So he set up base camp for his Gentile mission to, in Corinth, right next door to the synagogue, full of those who opposed him and reviled him. But if they weren't already mad at him, we're told in verse 8 that the ruler of the synagogue himself, Crispus, became a follower of Christ. Paul's trust in God's sovereign oversight of his life gave him unbelievable courage and, and, and boldness. And certainly that was made even stronger when he received vision with the Lord literally telling him, nobody's going to attack you to harm you. But look, look again very carefully at that, at that vision that he received in verses 9 and 10. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. I have many in this city who are my people? If there were already a bunch of Christians in Corinth, why would Paul be going there to start a church? Who were these people? Who were the lords in Corinth? They weren't already believers. They are those who would believe. They are those who would believe as Paul continued preaching. So go on speaking and do not be silent. He stayed a year and a half doing so. Say all that to say this. What Scripture teaches about divine election is not at odds with the open preaching and sharing of the gospel. In fact, from the mouth of God himself, from the mouth of God himself, here to Paul in Corinth, it is the very motivation to go on speaking and preaching and not be silent. But the larger point here is the assurance that in, in Paul's mind of God's sovereign presence, God's sovereign control, it gave him boldness in his witness. And the same should be true of us. I mean, we don't, we don't, bear, we don't bear witness to Christ in a world where God is merely watching. We don't. But where, where he is just as sovereignly present with us as he was with Paul. We need to go through our days with a more, with a more consciously enchanted worldview. Right? We live in an enchanted world where God is really present. He's really present. And over us as we go. To bless us and to move through us. And that gives us boldness as it did Paul. But another way Paul's life was impacted was not only through the boldness it gave him, but in the unexpected favor he received routinely. So Paul preached and taught in Corinth for a year and a half unopposed with home base right next door to the synagogue. Paul was like that. You remember when he got uh, arrested in Philippi and... Um, the, the authorities uh, wanted to let him go, and he knew they had been wrongly arrested. 
and the authorities were like, uh, send somebody to go let him out of jail. And, and Paul was like, no, you tell him to come to the and let me out of jail. And he's doing it again. He's like, all right, I'll leave. I'll go somewhere else and preach. He goes right next door. So he preached right next door for a year and a half unopposed. But more, it, said, it literally tells us in verse 8 that Crispus, the very ruler of the synagogue, believed his whole household. Many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. So the church was growing, and the Jews finally decided they wanted to stop it, and so they took action. It says in verse 12, But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. Now, it may sound funny when it says they made a united attack on Paul when the vision he had received said that nobody's going to attack you to harm you. The vision meant no one's going to attack you physically to harm you like he had in other cities. That didn't happen here. Instead, they tried to take Paul to court. And they brought Paul in front of the proconsul, Gallio. Interesting tidbit about him, at least to me. Lucius Gallio um, was the son of the famous orator Seneca and, um, and brother to the famous Stoic philosopher, also named Seneca. So he was part of a famous family in the Roman world. But when the Jews brought Paul before him, they accused him in verse 13, saying he's persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Now, I don't mean to, to help out those accusing Paul, but if they, if they had meant by this, if they had meant by that accusation right there, if they had meant by that what the Jews in Thessalonica, who were very mean-spirited, had meant... When they, they told, when they, remember they, they accused Paul to the authorities in chapter 17. And what they told the authorities was this. That Paul was acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. If they had made that kind of argument to Gallio, he might have listened to them. He might have, they might have gotten somewhere with him and, and won his favor. But when they accused Paul of persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. They don't mean Roman law. They mean Jewish law. And Gallio knew that's what they meant. So before Paul even had a chance to speak up in his own defense, Gallio, in verses 14 and 15, completely dismissed their charge. And in that way, God's promise to Paul came to pass. Nobody, he wasn't harmed in any way, not even in the court. Try as they might, nothing happened. I want you to notice what kind of favor God was showing Paul here. For one thing, Gallio was, it might have been from a famous family, he was not a just man. Wasn't a good man. Um, he wasn't concerned about justice at all. You see it in this very passage. Look at verse 17. After Gallio dismissed the charge, it says, they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue. He was the new guy after Crispus, the old guy, came to faith in Christ. And they beat him in front of the tribunal. You wonder, you just wonder. Sometimes you read this autobiographical, why did they beat this guy? It was probably one of those, this was your idea, you know. Um, and they beat him in front of the tribunal. But it literally tells us Gallio saw it and paid no attention. Gallio didn't care about right and wrong. But he absolved Paul before Paul ever even opened his mouth. But for another thing, Gallio's judgment was actually a greater gift than first meets the eye. 
at least for a little while it was. Gallio's judge, and it's, you never noticed, you never told that this, was, this became true empire-wide, but at least here in Corinth, Gallio's judgment about Christianity gave it a legal status because uh, Ju- Judaism was a legal religion in, in the Roman Empire, and Gallio made a pronouncement that Christianity was just a sect of Judaism. And so it gave, it gave Christianity legal cover, at least for a little while, in Corinth. All this to say, God's control over Paul's life manifested itself at times in favor granted from unexpected places. And we'll see this again and again and again in the coming chapters. Seriously, you'll see it again and again and again. Um, going through our days with a more consciously enchanted worldview understanding God's activity in it, we shouldn't be surprised that God will at times show us favor. In unexpected ways, walk by faith and don't walk by sight. Before we finish, there's just one more way that, that God, Paul's awareness of God's sovereignty over him affected him practically, and that is it, in that it gave him direction. After the trial in Corinth, Paul stayed for a little while longer before he went back to Antioch and wrapped up this second missionary journey. Before he got there, he made a quick stop in Ephesus. And he told them in verse 21 that he would return to them again if God wills before he went back to Antioch. Now notice verse 23. After spending some time there, that is in Antioch, he departed and went from one place to the next throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. And we've talked about this before. But even though from time to time God would give him a vision, a very specific vision about where to go next, Paul did not rely on these visions for every move. He knew that going, he just knew that going back through the places he had already been and strengthening the disciples there was just as important as moving on to the next place. What's the benefit of moving on to the next place if the work in the old place dies? Right? And so he decided to do it, and he did it. He trusted that God would sovereignly guard him from missteps as he sought to make good and wise decisions. So he says, if God wills, I'll do this. And in the end, God would will for Paul to be able to return to Ephesus and begin work there, which we'll see next week in chapter 19. Let's pray.